In Scotland, when friends get together, they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides, you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions. Be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote, from accommodation to zoos, the chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a recht good blether. And you could also join in our blethers on social media. You can find us as at Scottish Blethers on both Facebook and Instagram. We post additional content during the week that supports the podcast episode. We love making the podcast and would love it if you could share them with your friends and leave a review on the platform of your choice. Today we've got a special Scottish blethers. We've got an honorary bletherer because I'm very pleased to introduce you today to Lynn Barber. Now, I met Lynn when I started travelling to Orkney because Lynn um, works at Peatfire Tales in Orkney Storytelling, and I absolutely love it. The first night I heard it, I couldn't sleep. I had all these stories running around in my head. And so today I'm hoping that Lynn's going to tell us how she started and a little bit about the stories and the characters that you find on the Orkney Islands. So welcome to Scottish Blethers, Lynn. I've been looking forward to this because I love blethering. (laughs) (laughs) We all do. So from your voice, Lynn, we can hear that you're not an Orcadian. You don't come from Orkney. Where did you come from? Well, I was born in Stirling and my father was in the army, but we moved back to Dumbarton, just near Loch Lomond, when I was just a baby. And we've lived I lived there until I went to university in Glasgow. Well, of course, Helen, our other blatherer, um, she is a daughter of the Rock. She was born in Stirling, so she'll be delighted that she's got a sister of the Rock um, on Scottish blathers. So how did you end in Orkney? Part of my degree in Glasgow University was uh, archaeology. I'd never heard of anything to do with archaeology. But when I started, I wanted to go and find Scarabury and the Standing Stones. And therefore, my first sort of holiday with my husband was uh, to go up to Orkney. Fell in love with the place. And by the time my last year at university came, we'd actually got a house and decided to we would like to live in Orkney. I was actually married in Orkney. So don't ever study archaeology because you'll go looking for Scarabury and you may never leave Orkney. That's what happened to me. Wonderful. And of course, when you mentioned Scarabray, Orkney is famous as being a UNESCO World Heritage Site for um, Neolithic Orkney. Yes, actually, my, my Orkney Folklore and Storytelling Centre sits right in the middle of the UNESCO World Heritage Site, the heart of Neolithic Orkney. So you can understand why, um, with civilization going far as far back as we can trace it in Orkney, the people there have a long storytelling tradition, don't they? They do, Liz, actually. And what I got really interested in, I feel very blessed because I came in the mid-1970s and there was not many visitors. And I feel very blessed that I was invited in, no matter what the time of the year was, but particularly as the winter nights came, or afternoons rather, it was dark so early, I was invited into my neighbours' homes and they were the Arcadian people who worked the land and fished the sea. And how did you come to pick up the stories yourself? 
Well, actually, I was professionally teaching classical ballet and traditional Highland dance and contemporary dance and drama. And I opened my own dance and drama school and I worked with a lot of the children. But slowly, slowly, because of some wonderful, wonderful elderly people then, Peter Drever and Jackie Black and different people in Stromness telling me their stories and the customs, that got me really interested was the customs of the fishing and farming people. And then I realised the more and more I was teaching children to do dance and drama and story, that everyone had a story to tell and that the core of just about every day we live, we unfold our own story and we want to share that story very often. And I found the power, I call it the power of story, was what drove me on to then eventually running a creative learning centre in Edinburgh when I left um, for years. And I ran it for children who had difficulty in communication and you people who wanted to share their story could sing it like in ballads, could say it in rhymes, could tell your story, could even take a mask or a puppet in their hand and they would want to tell you their story. I think you found that some of the older people in Orkney were keen for you to take it on, weren't you? Is, is it dying out? Very much so. More and more that visitors came, more and more that people came to live in Orkney. I would say the, the sort of true lore, the purest lore coming from the language was being diluted. My sons were born in Orkney, but of course my, my parents used to come up from the West Coast and say they sound really Orcadian, but my Arcadian friends could tell there's a West Coast there. And of course, my grandparents were Irish, so were, that was there too. And what to remember, of course, is that on these islands, for thousands of years, there was an ancient oral living tradition. And Peter Drever is the one who really taught me most about that. And that ancient oral living tradition was about people actually hearing the voices and listening. And I actually think that George Mackay Brown, he sums it up in one little sentence. He says, the enchanting tongues went on and on beside the fish oil lamps. Then the grey of morning entered the crofts and called the islanders back once more to their hard work of ploughing and fishing. And that's what I feel my, my first 10, 15 years in Orkney were when I was a young woman, because I used to get invited to sit around and listen to them talking. Mm-hmm. And it's a lovely dialect, isn't it? The Orcadian dialect and so much influenced by the Norse language. Yes, it is. And I think this is what has emerged over many years is that it was, it was an ancient oral living tradition and and what we must remember Liz is that all the wisdom and knowledge actually from anywhere in the world for thousands of years was passed down by word of mouth but on these islands these islands sit in the confluence of two great seas the North Sea and the North Atlantic there wasn't just one language passing down knowledge of land and and sea there was at least three languages there was the Pictish people. They were the people of the runes, the people of the stones. There was then the old Norn language, which actually for nearly 900 years, the Norse Udalers, or Odalers is the Orkney word, the Norse settlers, families, who came here. And that's from the old Norse, the original old Norwegian. But then slowly came the Scots mother tongue here in the islands. And Gaelic was never spoken. So for about 250 years, some people were speaking two different languages, not just a dialect. And what happens when people come now is that the original true Orcadian, who has generations of family, their dialect, the Orkney dialect, that lovely flowing dialect, um, is a weaving actually of the Norn language and the Scots mother tongue, because the Pictish language was completely superseded by the old Norn language here. And it's got some fabulous characters, hasn't it, woven through the themes of the stories that you tell. Can you tell us something about some of these characters, like the Selkie folk? Yes, because remember, 
what I really am interested is not just people putting a label onto something like we come to hear Viking tales because the people who actually came here were the fishing and farming families from, from the Northlands. The people who come here from Scotland were the fishing and farming families. And so you've got all the, the, the rhymes and legends and stories and folk tales and beliefs of the land and the sea. And if you imagine like a weaving tapestry, you can't separate people's social customs and work traditions of the land and sea from the tales and legends and myths that weave through it, even the rhymes. And for example, the, the most common sea creature or character is the selkie, the grey seal. The selkie is the grey seal or bigger. The common seal here is called the tangfish. And the selkie doesn't need sorcery and magic because the selkie is an ancient belief, an ancient custom where they could shapeshift human to animal, animal to human. And sometimes it would be male, sometimes it would be female. And, and it's this weaving of the language I find fascinating because we must remember that the, the 6th century Iron Age people who built the brocks here, their belief system, they believed in shapeshifting animal to human, human to animal. And also the Sami people, the shamans, the spiritual leaders came from the way far north of Norway and did pilgrimages and wore seal skins and seal coats as they did their pilgrimage to protect them in the sea. So that's one of the, the creatures that the people who work the sea particularly have customs around. We have also the people of the land, the most common, I call it the peedy folk of Hill and Mound because the most common, I would say, creature or, or one that everyone knows about is the Trawi or the peedy Trawi folk. And that's again about a weaving of language and different oral cultures coming to live in these islands and they weave their belief system as well. Wherever there was a farm steading, wherever an Orkney yodeler would settle, the founder of the land, if you look around when you drive around or you walk around, there's mounds or hills, Piritrawi mounds, they call them. And you have to go way back to pre-Christian Norse times and because they believed that the founder of the land, when they were buried, when they passed, they'd be buried in this mound and they would be held with great reverence. They would give the first milk of the cow after it had given birth to the hogbun or haugrabui because there was different creatures who lived in these mounds. The Trawi folk, they lived in little groups, but then the mound dweller, the hogbun they called him in Orkney, comes from the old belief of this haugrabui, the founder of the land, the spirit of the mound. Those beliefs were held until into the 20th century because they would always bless it. Even when James Farrer opened Mace Howe, the farm there warned them said they were the Hogburn boys in there. You treated it with great sacredness. And even the first brew that was made, the ale was made, had to be poured in for the Hogburn or the spirit of the mound. They even say in the Northern Isles that they would sacrifice a bull or a, or a cow for the Hogburn. It was blessed because they believed that that spirit um, looked after all that was living in this farmland. The crops, the animals, the people. So you had to teach it, treat it with great respect and great sacredness so what you're saying is you know what today we treat as superstitions and we're not as in touch with that that, that side the myths and legends but what you're saying is that they actually have roots in reality you know the people coming from the north with the seal skins on you know that they're not so far flung no they're not and and what's very important with that is that if you look at anywhere in the world the indigenous people who work the land or fish the sea, 
they're living in, as an intrinsic, not just a part of nature. Their nature beliefs are intrinsic to their everyday, to their calendar, to their cycle of life, because they don't just believe that, you know, there's a hog going in there. They know that that was the person and all their hard work on the land that created the home and the land they have. And some of the stories are, are wonderful because the important part to always go back to, I, I feel, is that there were three languages that created this ancient oral tradition of passing on knowledge and wisdom and, and beliefs as well. And who were the Troy folk? Where did that come from? One of the common beliefs is that people automatically can do it because you know how we over decades or hundreds of years we can change a bit of language people think the trawies or the trolls they are very different creatures and they came from the Norselands. and actually you have to look at the fact there were three languages because the trawie here has much of the personality and traits of the the north european fairy folk but there has differences too because you have to go way back to the the darker side of the Norse belief system. And as I said, you can't separate people's belief systems and work traditions and customs from their, their legends and myths that emerge out of it because they try and make sense of it. The power of nature is so huge and big and they try and make sense of maybe something that's unseen. Norse times, one of the beliefs is that there was a, a more malevolent creature. It was called the Draugra. So perhaps the origins of the the trawi comes from that darker creature. And then slowly, as the Scots mother tongue came, slowly, slowly, you would have the brownie or the pixie. Or, and then slowly, you have people who came to live in the islands. And they would tell you, oh, there was a sprite as well. And so the, the trawi sort of, it, it grew over the, this, the hundreds of years to become this sort of unique little creature. What's wonderful about the trawi is that they were called the pitied folk of, Trill of Hill and Mound. And they always lived in these nows, these mounds, and they lived in little groups. And they say that generally the trowie was very ugly, sickly looking actually, and that sometimes he would try and pass off as a sort of older, gnarled up man, but he was actually not smaller than the average man, and usually dressed in greens and greys and, and dressed sort of more the earth colours because he was coming from the depths of the earth, from the caves and the mounds um, around the farmland. And of course, we're at Christmas just now, and um, traditionally up in, in Orkney with the Norse influence, it would have been Yule, wouldn't it? That's right. And what to remember again, you see, is it would actually be a case of, um, it was the Julian calendar, the old Julian calendar, remember, until the middle of the 1800s. So we had hundreds of years of, of the Norse traditions, and then the Pictish before that. So there's a weaving, and then, of course, the Scots traditions. And that didn't suddenly draw a line and happen. Everything is woven in as people would tell their tales around the fires. So we must remember that this Yule time would be the 6th of January for hundreds of years till the middle of the 1800s. And what I love is this weaving, this tension almost between an old belief system that was not Christian and a belief system that slowly as the Scots mother tongue came, as um, church came and education came, and people were starting to write down things and not just speak them by word of mouth. There was a tension between that, but this wove into their belief system as well. For example, um, there was seven days before Yule time, 6th of January, called Tullia's Eden. And I, I love this weaving because it's an old custom, ancient, 
but they used the Christian symbols because what they used to do to protect them from the Traweys, because what you've got to remember is that if you're not a good neighbour, the Trawi folk would come in at night and they would rumble through and they hated the Trawi people if you locked your doors. If you're not a good farm neighbour, then during the year, they would play tricks on you. The eggs would be rotten or the cow wouldn't give the milk. And particularly the Trawi, if they ever were out of their mound doing this at night, they always come out at night, if they were ever out beyond the light of dawn, they were called landbound. But there were seven days at Yule time, Tul Yazin, where they could be landbound and you had to beware them. Because if you had been a good neighbour, you were fine. If you had been an awful neighbour during the year, you better watch out. And they used to take two straws of oat or whatever and they were taken and they would make them into the form of a Christian cross and put them at the stile that led into the farmyard, pin it on there to protect them from the trary folk. Then this is the bit I love most. They would then take a hair from the tail of each cow and all the other beasts. They would pleat it into the shape of a cross and fasten them onto the different barn doors and the do their own croft doors. And then they would take what they called a low-entumbed peat, a blazing peat, smouldering blazing peat, was carried through all the outhouses and the barns and the byres to protect all the animals and the inhabitants of that particular croft settlement. I, I just love that. And then we'd also say that if you were a bad neighbour, the trawi would always, always punish you for that. And they say that they would even steal a child. And in the Scottish traditions, that's where you have the idea of the changeling. Or they would even take a cow from the buyer, and it was only stopped by the application of fire. One of the things the Trawi hated, and again, it's this tension of a belief system changing, was they hated the Bible. And they used to say that the old farmers would, uh, crofters rather, would um, take a leaf from the scriptures from the from the Bible, and they would tie it round the cow's horn during this time of Tullyazine to make sure that she had sufficient protection from the Trawi folk. But the Trawis would never enter a house above the door of which a knife was stuck because they were very afraid of steel. And this takes us right back to another belief of an origin of the Trawis from the Norse lands. Because if you go into the old Lord Miscellany and Orkney archives, for example, a man, um, Williamson and Lawrence, I think it was, of Midyale and Shetland, he would say, whoever meets a trow should draw a circle around him and bid God be about me, God be about me, three times. Lie down and stick the knife in the ground at his head because the Trawies were afraid of steel. And the advice from these many of the crofters was never travel at night through these islands, especially going through valleys between the mounds, without a steel knife in your pocket. Why? Because there's a belief, which I think is maybe one of the strongest ones, that they maybe already originated from the Huldra folk. And the Huldra folk, they were people of the forest hills and they would live in the caves. And the Huldra folk, um, what was really important about them was that the male was described, and he sounds very like a trawi, the male ugly and long nose and narrowed and wrinkled. Whereas the female, she was very beautiful and had a beautiful singing voice. But she had to bear a cross here because she had a long tail like a cow and tried to hide this with her dress. But she was hungry to marry a human man because if she married him in a Christian church, then she could become a human woman. And they say that, they, that these uh, these Huldra folk 
were some of the best farm wives milking and looking after the farm creatures. And this is why they were great with livestock and they wanted to be a human wife. Now, what's really interesting about this is that there's words in Orkney dialect that use this word huldra, names of farms in, in Westry or Firth and Hildrings and words like this. And they were used, you know, right into the, the late 19th century, actually, and maybe even the early 20th, because the Huldra folk would live in harmony with the farmers. But sometimes the Huldra folk, they say, could disappear. They were called the missing people. And this brings us to the aspect of not separating work and social traditions and not separating beliefs. Because today, we, many people would call it superstitions, toothache about if you were ill or midwives with superstitions. But they, they weren't just um, little beliefs. They were actually thousands, maybe even thousands of years of people passing on knowledge. And one of the things to say and there's a wonderful story about this as well. And this comes from the belief that maybe the Trari folk grew from the Huldra folk of the Norse. Because if someone, a farm wife, a farmer, a crofter, was sickly and lethargic, right? Ernest Marwick, the wonderful folklorist, and was born in 19, I think it's 1915 or 16. And he says that when he was a boy, he remembers people talking about people who were like this. And if they were sickly and lethargic, they were called in the hill. Local folk would say, he's in the hill. Because the belief was that the hill folk, the peaty folk of Trowin, of Hill and Mound, they took the souls of these people and they left only the body, the shell of the body. Would we interpret that as depression? Would we interpret that possibly in Victorian times as melancholic? Uh, uh, there's a lot of questions to ask about that. But what they say is that the Hulter folk were like the people I talk about, the crofting islanders who worked the land and fished the sea, because they say that the Hulter folk had the most amazing farms, green grasses, corn, and they said that they were wonderful farms and they had them on these islands that were called the missing islands. They would sometimes appear in the mist. We have a word here in Orkney called the Hildrings. And the old fishermen, I've spoken to old fishermen about this, they would say it's the hildrings, it's when there's a, a sea har, they would maybe think they see an island and they would sail towards that island. And that's one of the, the ways of trying to explain the phenomena of shipwrecks. But they call that the hildrings, islands that would appear and disappear. But there's a Norse belief, and I believe that's where this idea of carrying a steel or a metal knife or protecting yourself during Tullyazine with a knife, with metal, with steel. Because they say that if anyone could cast steel over these islands of the Huldra, then they would have that best farmland in the land. They would have that land that belonged to them. So there's a sort of weaving of beliefs and they get passed on. And in that belief of Tullyazine, one of the things is say they will never enter your croft house or a barn if there's a knife stuck above the door. I find that really fascinating. Oh, yeah, it is. And one of my favourites, Lynn, is the one that you tell about the old woman in the kettle and the uh, crossing. Uh, could you could you just give us that that story of the, yes. the old woman? I love the I love the, the 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 flow of it, how it oozes. And um, if you could just give us that one. Yes, her name was Bessie Millie, and Bessie Millie lived Bessie Millie lived in Brinkies Bray. And Brinkies Bray comes from two separate words. Brinkies, 
comes from the old Norn word brena, meaning fire, and bre comes, of course, from the Scots word, meaning hill. And if you stand with your back to the sea in stromness and look up behind the town, there is Brinkie's Bree. It's oldest part of Orkney geologically, 480 million years old. Now up there is the remnants of old Bessie Millie's house or croft house. And in the 1700s, Bessie Millie would go around the alehouses in Stromness, many alehouses, I have to tell you, and sell winds for silver sixpences to the seamen, captains, whalers. Cross my palm with silver and I'll sell you a northeast wind, good fisherman good whaler, good captain, and she would carry her old iron kettle and she would tell them if they would have a favourable wind. And Bessie Millie, an interesting aspect of Bessie Millie was, it wasn't she saw it as magic, what you said earlier, Liz, wasn't she saw it as magic. She also believed in being a Christian as well, but what she did see was that she had powers that she could use because she could enhance the powers of nature. Never abuse them, which could use the powers of nature. And what's wonderful about Bessie Millie is she was in the 1700s and in 1814, Sir Walter Scott came to Orkney. And I won't tell you what he said about Orkney, well, strongness, but he was up to mud, up to his arms in mud. And he came quite a few times and he actually took Norna, one of his characters, from having met Bessie Millie. And in one of his lesser books, paraphrasing this slide, he says that, on the eve before we left Hamnavo, the old name of Stromness, sheltered haven, on the eve before we left Hamnavo, my party and I gave Bessie Millie many silver sixpences, and she crossed her hand for a favourable wind as on our departure the next morn. And then there's a few more words, and he says, and it was so. And he puts a little note in one of the, the 19th century books, he puts a little note. When he met Bessie Millie, she boasted to him that she was 100 years old. And I know from another old book of the 19th century that her cousins, they were classed as witches in Rosshire in Scotland. But again, you have to go back to this passing down of an ancient oral tradition through at least three languages. Because in Orkney here, they were not called witches. The women here who, who could heal, the women here who used the charms to heal someone. I think it's quite fascinating when you look at how they define someone in the hill. And they say here, and I'm just going to give you a little bit of the beginning of it, because it's uh, um, one of my stories I want to be doing next year about my Petey Folk of Hill and Mound. But they say that there's an old crofter in Rousey many, many hundreds of years ago. And he was so annoyed. He felt he had no more trust in his neighbours because they wouldn't take him out the hill. Because they say, and this is the old lore miscellany, People swear that his neighbours were saying this, take me to this mound, I know I can tell you where my soul is. Because he was so annoyed and saddened that his neighbours wouldn't believe him because he said, take me out the hill, I can show you where it is. Because all that they had was the empty shell of his body. And I'll just give you a little bit of how the story starts, because it says here, this is a crofting man's story from the island of Rousey. A crofting man that was in the hill. And he says... He took to his bed one winter. He didn't get up again. Oh, no. He had plenty of work to do about the farm. His strength and his knowledge were sorely missed. He was one of the best farmers on that island of Rousey. Now, this Rousey man had no symptoms of illness. He had no strength to work. And he kept saying he was on his deathbed. And he kept saying, the only time he would ever go to the house again, my neighbours carry me to the kirkyard.
He lay there in his box bed, useless and dejected. Soon it would be time for ploughing and sowing. But he whispered, Nah, these labours are not for me now. Beyond my strength, my son'll have to work in the fields. This crafting man for Rousey had no taste for the islands. Winter feasting and fiddling, yuletime celebrations, the geysers coming around singing. He had no time for it. All he did was turn his face to the wall. One day his wife came to his bedside. She'd had enough. I'll be telling you, mercy me, I'll be telling you. There's nothing wrong with you. You're lazy. You're a shame and disgrace lying there useless in your bed. The sun's shining now. We have to get this in before the harvest time's over. The women can't do all the work here. I'm milking. I can't do it all. I'm cleaning the stables out. Your son's too small for the plough. Your daughter? How can she cut the peats where are we small white hands? Another year of this and our farm and croft will be in ruins. Now this good wife of Rousey hoped that her scorn and anger would raise this crofter from his bed. But he only sighed, turning face to the wall. The only time you'll get me out this bed is when my neighbours carry me to the yard. So she decided that she would send in some men in the parishes and townships of Rousey, men of power on that island. The minister tried to reason with him. You really must think of your duty towards your family, you know. Get your plough and your ox ready. You're breathing steady. You've got a hearty appetite and a pair of fine, thick shoulders. But the rousy crofter sighed. You'll be needed to read your Bible. That Bible of yours when they carry me out to the graveyard. And it'll be before midsummer. His crofting brother came from the other side of the island of Rousey. Think I'm going to keep your wife and your bairns? You're much mistaken. You've a far better land here than I have. Get up and do some work, boy. You'll be needing cheese and egg and potatoes. Bread, malt for your ale. I'm no doing it for you. Folk are mocking, I'll mock you. Far beyond this island of Rousey, they're calling you the rousy bear that sleeps all winter. But the rousy crofter turned and faced the wall, sighed, let them laugh. Time for laughter will soon be over. I'll never laugh again. I know where I am. You need to take me to the mound on the west shore. I know where I am. You have to take me to find my soul. Well, that didn't please anyone around him. The minister, his brother, his wife. Finally, the laird came. Now, he was the man. He paid his five shillings rent to every year. Now listen here, good man, when I see one of my holdings has not been well farmed, I will take the steps to remedy that situation. Either get out that bed and do your work, or I'll have a new tenant here, the Martinmas. I'm warning you. The rousy crofter sighed. You do as you see fit, man. My days are drawn to a close. Before midsummer, I'll soon be a tenant of a very dark, deep, narrow place. I know I will. Tart me to the mound in the west shore. And they all left baffled. Even the island children came about the open door, peered in the windows of the crofters to jeer at the lump under the blanket. Slug a bed, slug a bed, slug a bed, they chanted. But when the crofter turned his melancholy eyes on them, 
they ran away sore afraid. In those faraway times when a person was sick, the old spaywife who knew the species and remedies appropriate to every sickness that anyone who worked the land or fished the sea had was sent for. So the rousy spaywife came, but she could not discover what ailed this patient. He had no pain, cool on the forehead, steady heartbeat, appetite. The old spaywife was bewildered. There's nothing else for it. We have to call the trowy healer. Face sharpens him. You must be sent for. I can do nothing. It's a serious business. If he's in the hill, the trowy healer's the only one that can tack him out the hill. And that story goes on where they go to, the, the wife goes to Shappensey and she tries to find this trowy healer. And that trowy healer would dance at night with his whistle. And he called the trowy folk. For midsummer night, the trowy folk were abroad. That's when they would come out. And there's a place in Orkney in East Mainland, if you ever come there, you have to go, called Dingus Howe, between Deerness and the sea and that's the mound they say that where most of the trowies there's different mounds they will lie but the trowian people in midsummer they will come out and they are alive and they say don't ever invite your children to that the midsummer solstice because the trowies love beauty and music and children and i think george mckay brown again he he does a wonderful thing when he does a poem called Darst the Gang with the Black Furrow. I, I won't read the whole lot of it. I usually use it within my story of the, the Trowy folk. But he just whispers because what they say is, don't ever walk through the night by yourself amongst the mounds and the valleys. If you do, what the Shetland man said, you better make sure you carry a piece of steel, a knife. And George Mackay Brow says, Darst the Gang with the Black Furrow. This night thee and thy song. Wet my mouth with a lantern ale and I'll go along. They spied him near the black furrow by the gleam of the wolf star. Slow the dance was in his feet, dark the fiddle he bore. And then one of the last verses he says is, There stood three men, beady men, at the black furrow, and one was clad in yellow. They led the fiddler through a door where near a bird would follow. They put the gowd cup in his hand, Elfin breed in his tongue, there he bad a hundred years, they say, him and his lawless song. Darst the gang with a black furrow on a muck night alone. I'd rather sleep with Christian folk under a kirkyard stone. So you see why I'm saying that the ancient language which passed on the wisdom of the land and the sea the rhymes, the ballads, the stories, the legends, the customs, and what we would call today superstitions. I'm always very careful with that word, but the beliefs of the people on these islands. You see, it was three languages weaving in. And when anyone comes here from an ancient oral culture to live for hundreds of years, they would bring their own belief system. And I love the tensions that go between the different belief systems because they end up sort of morphing in to something that becomes quite unique to Orkney. And this happens all over the world. The Trawi folk are unique to the Orkney Islands and Shetland as well, but the Orkney Islands particularly.
Well, thank you so much, Lynn, for that. I just love the stories and just listening to it. And for our listeners, I'd just like you to imagine sitting by a peat fire, a roaring fire made from peat with a little dram in your hand in the darkness, nice and warm, and listening to Lynn's voice as she tells the stories of the Orkney Islands. It's just absolutely wonderful, and I hope you've had a flavour of it today. Thank you, Liz. Can I just finish with George Mackay Brown's words? Absolutely. Because this is how I, I like to, to finish all my stories, and I just think it would let people maybe maybe go to his books sometimes and read them. Because he says just what you said there, Liz. A time in the old Orkney Crofts with their cruisy lamps under the rafters, the feeblest of glimmers, with the old soft mouths at the edge of darkness, telling their spells and stories over and over again. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, that's the last words, but. On Scottish Blessers, we have a tradition that we always end up with words of the day. Now, throughout your tales, Lynn, you've been using the word peedy, which is one of the most common words used in Orkney. Can you explain what peedy means? Yes, I love it. Peedy is the Orkney word from, um, well, there's, a, again, a weaving of Scots Miller or, or, or Norse. Peedy means small, but if you have are talking about a living creature, like a lamb or a child or a puppy or a kitten, a living creature, then I love it. It's called piri, P-E-E-R-I-E. Piri is like a piri stool or a piri room or a piri mound. And it's just really interesting. Again, that'd be another program, Liz. But again, the old word for the Pictish people, the old Orkney word, was pecht, P-E-C-H-T. So you have piri or piri. I, I just think they're so wonderful. Brilliant. I've learned something new. I didn't know about the Piri. I knew about the Piri. But that's, and as you say, Lynn, so much, so many stories. And hopefully people will have enjoyed this one and we'll get you back again to tell you some of your other stories because it's just wonderful. So thank you again so much, Lynn. And I hope that our listeners have enjoyed it. Thank you. You're an honorary blether. (laughs) Thank you so much. Watch out for the trousers when you come and visit Orkney. (laughs) Will do. And there we have it, the end of another episode of Scottish Blethers. If you'd like to join us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Scottish Blethers. And if you'd like to leave a review, please do so on your podcast platform of choice. It's cheery bye from me. Ta-ta the new from me. And if I don't see you through the week, I'll see you through the windy from me. Bye. See ya. Bye.